Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Um, it, it really is uh, so good to see all of you here. Um, I think the Lord has some really wonderful things in store for us today. Um, we're starting a new series. We've been on this kind of long journey this year that the, the vision for this year is together with one heart and mind drawing close to God. Uh, we spent the first part of the year talking about, you know, before we explore listening to God, what is God like, kind of understanding his character. Um, we moved on from there to learning how does God speak to us and how do each one of us, uh, how are we uniquely crafted to listen to him? And what are some ways perhaps that we want to learn how to listen to him, kind of new territory? Uh, and then the series that we just finished last week, responding to the invitation of, to God, of God is to say, what do we do once we feel like God is speaking to us? What do we do with that information? How do we turn that into a life uh, that's filled with purpose, um, that's there to advance the kingdom, some of that different language that we used for it. And so we're starting a new series. Um, every year I like for us to do a series of what's called expository preaching. This is a little, none of, I don't know, this may not be useful information to any of you, but uh, I find it fascinating. There's topical preaching if it's like, you know, we're going to talk about grace. And so then we look for scriptures that talk about grace, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's very good. Um, but there's also expository preaching that's saying, we're going to look at this scripture and we're going to see what the scripture's there to tell us. And it's a really great opportunity that sometimes the Lord leads us into some surprising conclusions. And so the next series for the next couple months, we're going to be going through Paul's letter to uh, the Philippians. And the question, um, the kind of, the thing that I want us to hone in on for this entire series is this, that we must learn to think like Christians to meet the challenges of our modern world. We have to learn how to think like Christians. When I think about um, where we're at in the modern world, all of these big questions that are floating around and, and you know, we've talked about how it, it almost feels like sometimes it's raining fear and anxiety in our culture today. Many of us are not well equip, equipped to meet the modern questions of the world because growing up in the church or whatever we've been presented to as our faith, we've been told what to think, but we haven't been taught how to think. And so a lot of times the answers that we have for the questions that are being asked within our culture are antiquated, or they're not effective, or they're not really listening to what's going on. And there's a, there's a work to be done within us through the Holy Spirit that actually teaches us how to think, how to think like Christians, how to think like Jesus, so that we can be faithful presences in all of these conversations you know, with your friends and your family and society at large. And so we're going to be using Philippians... Uh, to kind of walk through that journey of saying, God, how do we learn how to think like Christians? What are, the, what are the attributes that we're looking for within our own lives that would say that we are looking to be faithful to you in every part of who we are? So we're going to pray uh, and we're going to read this first passage from Philippians. Um, Heavenly Father, blessed Son, Holy Spirit, uh, God, three in one and one in three, we invoke your presence here this morning, even as you all are already here. God, I pray for each one of us that we would have that moment, like Jacob awaking from the dream of seeing your throne and saying, surely God was in this place, but I was the one that wasn't aware, but now I am. So Lord, wake us up. Open our eyes to see you move. Open our ears to hear you speak, not just to uh, us in general, not just to us as a community, but to each of us as individuals. 
Open our hearts to receive your truth that whatever you desire to do in us today would transform us by the renewing of our minds. Because as we begin to think differently, we begin to feel differently, we begin to act differently. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so I'm going to read um, the first 11 verses of Philippians. That's kind of the preamble, and then we're going to get right into it. But I'm going to read it in, a, in one translation, and then what I'm going to be using through the rest of the message is going to be in a different translation. And it's not going to be on the screens. I want you to close, uh, close your eyes. I'm going to say close your ears. Don't do that. Close your eyes and just really listen for these words um, and, and, and kind of imagine that this is you know, this is a, a great and mighty apostle writing to us specifically, okay? He's writing to you. This is how he wants to begin his letter. So go ahead and you close your eyes. This is Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, both of us committed servants of Christ Jesus, write this letter to all the followers of Jesus in Philippi, pastors and ministers included. We greet you with the grace and peace that comes from our God and Father and our Master, Jesus Christ. Every time you cross my mind, I break out in exclamations of thanks to God. Each exclamation is a trigger to prayer. I find myself praying for you with a glad heart. I am so pleased that you've continued on in this with us, believing and proclaiming God's message from the day you heard it right up to the present. There's never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish at the very day Christ Jesus appears. It's not at all fanciful for me to think this way about you. My prayers and hopes have deep roots in reality. You have, after all, stuck with me all the way from the time I was thrown in jail, put in trial, and came out of it in one piece. All along, you've experienced with me the most generous help from God. He knows how much I love and miss you these days. Sometimes I think I feel as strongly about you as Christ does. So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much, but well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. Can I get someone to testify? Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus would be proud of, bountiful in fruits from the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. Amen. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I love understanding the background of why Paul is writing what he's writing and to who he's writing them, right? And I think it, it I, I don't know about you, but I actually draw a lot of comfort from understanding that most of Paul's letters were written because there were problems in the church, right? Most of it is correction. I love like 1 Corinthians. It's like the first paragraph is like, you know what? Gosh, I love you guys. Okay, anyway, so here's the list of everything that I've been hearing, you know? Um, and it's, it's really valuable for us to understand the, the background of what's going on within this church, what's going on within this city that kind of prompts Paul to write what he's writing. 
And so I want to talk a little bit about the church in Philippi just to kind of give us that basis so we can begin to lean in and to listen in a specific way because I think the church in Philippi has some amazing things uh, to teach us. So this is a map. You all know that I love maps. This is a map of kind of the known world in the day of Paul. And this red line is actually uh, his third missionary journey. Now, if you look way up in the left in the yellow, that's Macedonia. Uh, Macedonia is uh, kind of the last piece of Europe, basically, before you start to enter into Asia um, with modern-day Turkey, what, it's, what was called Asia in the ancient world. And if you look, even the northernmost little city that's called Philippi. Um, and so Philippi uh, was a small Roman outpost in the days of Jesus and the days of Paul, that the Roman Empire had kind of taken over the entire Mediterranean, stretching up into Europe and kind of making its way over and through Asia and the Middle East. Uh, so Philippi was actually the very first church in Europe. How many of you are Europe, of European descent? Okay, this is where you probably could trace back your lineage in some degree that the message that God was bringing from, um, from Judea was kind of traveling up through Asia into Europe and Greece and then on to Rome. And Philippi was kind of the first place um, that a Christian church was established within Europe. So Paul probably visited Philippi sometime between 49 and 51 AD. So we're talking, you know, maybe less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he wrote this letter about a decade later in about 60 AD. So this is a church that's been well established. You know, we've been a, a church for seven or eight years. This is a church that's 10 years old um, and he's possibly writing this while he's imprisoned in Rome. Uh, he has a lot of time on his hands, so he decides he's going to send out some letters. Um, and, you know, where many of these letters are specifically uh, loving rebuke of these communities, trying to get them back on track or to change the narrative, there's, that's not necessarily the background of, uh, of the church of Philippi. And you can kind of hear that in the beginning of this letter, that Paul has a deep love and affection for this community. And he just, it's overflowing from him. I love the way that the message puts it. He says, you know, sometimes I think I love you as much as Christ does. And there's a deep devotion to this community. And we find out in other places, in Acts, um, and then in the letter to the Corinthians, that it was a very poor church. Um, this is not like Corinth, where it's a major trade city, and there's a lot of riches to go around. This is like a small, in the boondocks, middle of nowhere, military outpost. There's not a lot of money. They were a very poor community, but they were incredibly generous. And even challenges the Corinthians. He says, you know, the church in Philippi, your brothers and sisters there, they were the first to give. They were the first ones to say yes and to, and to, to sow into my ministry. And so the, I love this letter because it's founded on that deep love and affection. But I think what I, what I really want us to, to examine today and kind of as the narrative for where we're going with this series um, is to understand that Philippi and the church in Philippi, this is a very small church, maybe no bigger than our church even, this is a very small outpost in the middle of the pagan world. Okay, that in the time of Jesus and Paul, um, the Roman narrative was the biggest narrative that there was, and Rome kind of entertained uh, polytheism, that Rome had their gods, but you can continue to worship your gods. And the way that Rome actually conquered, they'd go into a place and they'd say, okay, you can keep your gods, and they're fine, and they're nice, you just have to kind of acknowledge Caesar, and we're going to build some of our um, monuments and synagogues and statues and whatnot to our gods, and we're going to put them in there, but it's going to be totally fine, everything's okay. And most other people said, yeah, that's fine, we can kind of handle that. And it was the, the Israelites or the Judeans that said, no, 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 we only serve one God. And that was why there was so much conflict in the Middle East in the first century. And so the challenge, I think, for us is that a lot of times we assume that we live in a Christian culture. 
We assume that everything that we are as a society was built on Christian values, and to some degree, that's true. But if we just assume that everything, every idea around us is, is founded in Christianity and that everybody basically believes the same thing, I think that's the first place that we begin to miss the conversations that are happening around us. And secondly, what happens then is that we begin to hear what the conversations in our culture and assume that they're Christian perspectives. And so we remove the place of thinking intelligently like Christians, and we just assume that whatever we're interpreting from our own society, from our own culture, is probably Christian because we are a Christian culture. And I think this is what's so dangerous and what's so powerful about listening to the Philippians and the kind of applying it to us, is to say the sooner that you and I realize that we are living in a pagan society, the, the more we will begin to ask the right kinds of questions of God and of one another. And I know that's very controversial, but I think this is incredibly important, that when we begin to recognize that we live within a pagan society, it dramatically shifts our understanding. It wakes us up to go, oh my goodness, what am I actually called to be and to do in this day and age? And so the question becomes, what does it mean to be faithful witnesses in a pagan world? What does it mean for us to no longer take for granted that we have a seat at the table or that we are the, the, the dominant um, you know, conversation starters within American society? Now, you may think that's very strange. How could we be a pagan god? If anything, fewer people believe now than ever before. We don't have these big panoplies of gods like they had in Rome and Greece and, and in Scandinavia or wherever you might be. Um, we don't have those kinds of gods anymore. Um, a lot of, in, indeed, a lot, I think, of society would say, oh, we've actually evolved past the place of having to believe in gods. The gods serve their purpose in kind of explaining how the world works, but we're much more intelligent now in the 21st century. But actually, I want to argue that many of those dominant gods from the Greek and Roman era are still alive and well today. We just don't call them the same names. And so, for instance, there was the worship of Aphrodite in the ancient world, the goddess of erotic love. And we'd say, oh, well, we no longer have that. But we still have severe issues with the idea of erotic love being worshipped as a god in our modern era. And this is the powerful thing. All gods demand sacrifice, right? Every god demands sacrifice. And so when we inadvertently worship a goddess of erotic love, the sacrifice becomes the well-being of the people that worship her. Consider pornography just as an example of what happens when we worship sexuality, when we place that on a pedestal and it becomes everything that we are, we sacrifice people to those gods. You know, maybe you're familiar with this in the story of Jesus where he says you cannot serve both God and mammon. And mammon's kind of an obscure God. And we say, well, surely we don't, we don't worship him. But, you know, we still have this worship of our economy. If the economy is strong then we are strong. And so we do everything we can to support the economic systems that we have in play. And if we have a big Dow Jones industrial number, then we're doing well. And we turn a blind eye to the reality of how people are being affected within our society. We worship greed. So Mammon is alive and well. Maybe it's Ares, uh, the god of war. In Rome, he's called Mars. And we say, surely we don't worship that God anymore, but how often is our answer military might and strength? That's how you change the world. That's how you bring about peace. You see, in the Roman Empire, it was called Pax Romana, peace through strength, which was really peace through violence. And if we have a big enough army, then we can actually fix the world. You see, Ares is alive and well today. We worship the gods of consumerism, 
that say, you're not okay the way you are, but if you use this toothpaste, people will love you, right? That you as in, a, as, what? What's it called? Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. Colgate, obviously. But that's cons- the, the God of consumerism tells you you're not okay the way you are. You are incomplete. You are not whole. But if you consume products, relationships, status, success, then maybe you can be whole, which is to really say maybe then you can be lovable. We worship the gods of individualism. I get to craft my own world. I get to decide at the end of the day who I get to be and how the world works. All these idols, they demand sacrifice and they are chewing up and spitting out our loved ones, left, right, and center. The sooner that you and I realize that we are living in a pagan world in pagan times with pagan gods, the better we can begin to listen to these first Christians and say, what was it like to be a tiny outpost of faithful people to a dead rabbi living in a world that does not understand that message? What does it look like for us to be faithful in the way that they were faithful? So we're going to break down this passage and just kind of look at these three little pieces. So first of all, uh, verses three to six. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I love that this is the way that Paul begins his letter because what it really speaks to me and something that I really need to hear a lot of times and I think perhaps you do as well is that gratitude and joy are not contingent on you having arrived, okay? Someone taking joy in who you are and being thankful for you is not connected to how much you've achieved or if you've already made the grade or you've already measured up to the thing. Paul is looking at this community that he's known for over 10 years and he's saying, I'm so thankful for you and my heart is so filled with joy seeing that it's not about the fact that you have already achieved, it's that you're still in it and you're still on the journey. I think this is what's so beautiful because for Paul, maturity is not a level to which you have you know, ascended. Maturity is, are you continuing on the journey? Are you continuing to move forward in the story? And I think we need to change some of our perspective, especially those of us who really think that perfection or maturity or, or being, or whatever it might be, is as soon as we get everything arranged on the shelf and it's perfect and we just kind of freeze frame our lives, then maybe we've got something that will get people to love us and notice us. And what happens, the reality of our lives is the shelves are constantly shifting and moving around. And as soon as we get all of our ducks in a row, something changes it and it's all shifted and we're constantly in crisis because we feel like we're not measuring up. But it's the process that Paul blesses within this community, that we are all prayerfully in process as God works within each one of us. We are all prayerfully in process. I love talking to my friends that are in recovery about how the 12 steps work. And it's this constant um, offering of grace and mercy that when that people, it's amazing, people actually begin to feel like I can admit to my shortcomings when I know that I'm not going to be condemned for it, that I didn't measure up. Because everybody has a seat. Everybody's continued to come in. Like, like even like Johnny has said with the, the NA group that meets here on Tuesdays, like the door is always open. 
And that's the kind of attitude that we need to have, recognizing all of us are in process. And if any of us are really honest, we're only an inch along a mile. You know, I find it laughable when think, people think that I'm some sort of super Christian. You know, as if it's like, it, we're, we're in Mario and I, you know, I ate the mushroom and now I'm, the, I'm like the big Christian, like any, you know? Um, we are so far from where we're supposed to be. We are so far from like what it's supposed to look like. All of these supposed tos. And we don't realize that God blesses us and delights in us even as we fall short continually every single day. He still looks at you and says, oh yes, that's my daughter. That's my son. That's my beloved. And I love them for who they are. I love them because they are the beloved. And I champion them because they're continuing to stay faithful, continuing to move the plot forward. In theology, we talk about this idea that the kingdom is the kingdom of the already and not yet. That the kingdom is already here. Jesus says the kingdom is within you, the kingdom is among you, it's already here. Yet there's something within us as Christians that recognizes this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. We know that we haven't arrived and we live in this creative tension between what already is of the kingdom and that the kingdom is not yet here. The kingdom is advancing but it is also on its way. And we live in that creative tension now as we're seeing God continue to work out his rescue project for the world through you and I. That we become those, those people that stand in between two worlds and learn how to maneuver the space, remaining faithful there. Yes, messing up sometimes, sometimes getting it right, but continuing to hold that sacred space between the already of the kingdom and the not yet until we see it come to completion. This is going to set some of you free. Ready? Do you realize that the church and the kingdom of God are not the same thing? How often do we, we punish the church because it doesn't look like the kingdom? Of course the church looks the way the church looks. Have you looked at us? Like, look around for a second. Everything that we see of the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God? I say the kingdom of, of God is the character of God on display. It's perfect. It's perfect. The church is a faithful band of fallen people that are seeking out the kingdom, right? Right? That's what we're doing. We're waking up more and more to the realities of the kingdom day by day, allowing it to saturate the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we act until we become more and more invested in the reality of the kingdom. But they're not the same thing. And you need to stop punishing the church for not being the kingdom. It was never going to be the kingdom until Jesus comes and finishes what he started. Amen. Amen. But this is, and you wonder, we get this frustration, why, if, if God could just do it, why doesn't he just show up? Why doesn't he just say this thing? Why doesn't he just reveal himself? Because God is a God of love, not of coercion. The spirit of the Satan is a spirit of coercion. The spirit of God is one of love. And God never insists. God never forces the hand of mankind because he respects you. And God will continually, this is why I'm always praying ad infinitum, like God is with us and he is for us. Because the God of love that is wooing us at every moment and seeking to be present to us when we fall or when we're totally immersed in his presence and everything's the best that it could possibly be. God is just as present in all of those moments cheering us on. The door to the kingdom of heaven is always open. He's calling his children home. He's standing and gazing at the horizon, waiting to see us come over the hill so that he can run out and to gather us and bring us back to his table. 
And that brings us to the second part of this passage. Paul continues in verse 7. I think we, we should be able to get this on the screens there. It is right for me to feel this way about you. Since I have heard you in my heart, or since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. A couple months ago when I was I'm sitting next to a lake and I'm just kind of going through Philippians like, Lord, what do you want to say to us um, through this? Not just in general, let's not just do like a cool Bible study on Philippians. Like, what do you actually want to say to City Beautiful Church? This is the first phrase that, that, that really came out of the page at me. The affection of Christ Jesus. That Paul is saying, I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus. What is that? I think you and I, we need the affection of Christ Jesus to guide us in the process, on the journey. We need the affection of Christ Jesus to become the fuel that keeps us involved, that keeps us faithful, that keeps us moving the story forward. And we also need the affection of Jesus to offer grace to others who are in their process. And this is, this is what I love about Paul in this letter. We're going to see it several times. Paul doesn't just communicate ideas. Paul doesn't just come and say, let's talk some theology and let's explain how God works and let me, let me give you some doctrines for the church. He says, oh, I'm in prayer. I'm constantly in prayer. I'm praying to God. And we saw this in Ephesians even a couple weeks ago. Like I pray to the Father that through the Spirit that you would be invested in the Son. Everything for Paul is not just about communicating ideas. It's about praying realities, relational realities that bind us together as the people of God and bind us to God himself. I love that Henry Nouwen said, prayer brings God back again and again to the center of our life. Do you realize that talking about ideas doesn't make them real? Talking about ideas doesn't put them at the core of who you are. You got to do something with ideas. And again, this is part of our Western inheritance that's more of a pagan idea that truth is, is, is objective and external and it's over there and I can kind of acknowledge it. Maybe I tip my hat at it, but it doesn't affect me. But you see, for us in our Christian household, in our heritage, truth is truth because it, it affects us. It's up close and it's personal and it's dynamic. And it requires us to get some skin in the game, to get involved, to have the courage. I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage to pray the realities of who God is over ourselves and over other people. Rather than saying, well, first I need to intellectually figure all of this out at a distance and then I'll get back in and then I'll start investing. It never works. Because guess what? Most Christian theology doesn't make a lot of sense. A God who's three and also one a Jesus who's 100% divine and 100% man, that's 200%. That doesn't work. <laughs> it's not something that we're just supposed to check off on a box like, oh yes, here's this statement. It's something that we invest ourselves in, we live in, and prayer becomes the way that we manifest these realities and who we are, bringing God back to the center of our own lives. I had coffee with a, uh, a friend this week and we were talking about community and, and talking about being on this journey together. And there's something that I've been formulating for a little while. I'm thinking about, you know, that, that one um, little passage in the Old Testament where it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay, taste and see. You know, a lot of times we think that we eat in order to be satisfied. But I've actually recognized in my own life that it's when I eat, it actually makes me hungry for things I never thought that I could be hungry for, right? 
And in fact, when you're emaciated, you actually lose your sense of hunger. It's a psychological barrier that you use to cope with the fact that you were hungry once. And it's really dangerous when people lose their hunger because it means something is shut down in their will. But a lot of times we taste and we see that we want more. So we were talking specifically about community and saying, I think some people have such low expectations for what community is because they've never actually tasted what was possible. When I was in, when I was in college, I kind of had two groups of friends. I had my Christian friends and they were fine. You know, we'd talk to, we could talk about Jesus. And then I had all my punk rock friends and we're going to like house shows and jumping on each other and drinking PBR on the porch and like the weirdest potlucks, like all this food that we rescued out of dumpsters and all this stuff. Like it was a glorious time in my life. <laughs> and my Christian friends, we could connect on our faith and my non-Christian friends, not hostile in the slightest. They were very curious about my faith, but there was just a, a part of who I was that I couldn't really share with them. And I just assumed that's the way that it was going to work. And then I moved to Nashville and I found my community there and I realized, oh my goodness, you mean I can have both of those things in the same group of people? Like I can actually have people that I can talk to about the Lord and we also are like diehard and we live together and we like eat together and maybe we don't always eat out of dumpsters anymore. Eventually you'll have to grow up. But like we can have this deep level of community. I didn't even know that was possible. And it's so funny, you know, when you grow up, you think that you get more of a handle on life and your emotions and your attachments. Every time I move, it actually becomes harder than it was before. Because I've test, tasted and seen what's possible in deep community. And how many of us are no longer hungry for God because we're not tasting and seeing in a way that would make us hungry? And is this not how love works? I think true love is to say to someone, I never needed you until I met you. And then when I met you, I realized I couldn't leave, live without you. It's not until you encounter love that it actually creates that hole in your heart that makes you hungry. I think what happens in salvation is our souls are saved immediately. And your soul knows what it was created for. Your soul just absolutely knows what intimacy with God is like, what intimacy with other people is like. But your mind and your heart and your body, it takes them a long time to catch up. And I think that's what the journey is. Your mind, your brain, the way you think, your heart, the way you feel your way through the world, they're still seeking out that thing that your soul has already found. Now, when you don't listen to your soul, what happens is that you get distracted by all the other idols that promise you all these other things. But when you begin to listen to your own soul, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to taste and see what is possible within community, it guides you and it starts to begin in that process of refinement. And I know that I'm guilty of it, I know many of you are, but we've become so cynical when it comes to the idea of community in the church. We've become so cynical and critical because we've been hurt, we've been disappointed. It isn't the kingdom that we thought it was going to be, whatever it is. And then we actually have the audacity to drag Jesus in by the cloth and say, and imagine what Jesus would think of the church today. Oh my gosh. Jesus would be astounded if he walked in and this was the church full of all these weird people. And we actually think for Jesus. Do you think for a second that Jesus does not know what his church looks like right now? Like, do you think God has been asleep for 2,000 years and he just woke up in 2019 and he goes, whoa, this is not the organized religion I set out to plan. It's insane. We think that we're the ones that are reinventing the wheel and we're waking up to what this is actually supposed to be. I think Jesus knows exactly what the church looks like. 
I think he knows exactly what you look like. I think he knows all of your greatest and most glorious gifts, and he knows all of your deepest, darkest secrets, and he still has affection for you. He still has affection for the church. Jesus is not cynical when it comes to the church. And that includes the Baptists. Jesus is not cynical when it comes to his church. He looks at his church in all of her flaws and all of her mistakes and all of the times that she has not been faithful. And he says, I still love her. She's mine. Isn't she the best? Jesus has affection for the church. And we pray into the reality of who God is as revealed in Jesus. We inherit Christ's love for the church. And so my question for you today, do you long for your community with the affection of Jesus? Or do you look around and turn your nose up at her because she's hurt you, because she's disappointed, because she didn't meet your expectations, because you've been made to be hungry for things that the church was never meant to fulfill? And what is that affection of Jesus? I think the affection of Jesus is 100% acceptance and 100% transformation. That's what the love of Christ looks like. That you are 100% accepted. And through love, you 100% are guaranteed that you will be transformed. You will change. That is not a negotiable. If you claim to be in love and you not have not changed because of that love, newsflash, you are not in love. This is what love does. Love accepts and love transforms. And when you and I begin to love the church, to love our community with the affection of Christ Jesus, all of a sudden our vantage point, our view of her, our view of one another becomes a lot higher. It becomes a lot more sacred and blessed. And I think affection is imperative for long-term investment. If I have to sit in another meeting where we just chalk up all of our problems to just being communication issues, I'm going to burn down the internet. I've been in part of so many organizations and that's the problem. Oh, we don't communicate. We need better communication. We need all these different techniques to communicate better. And I'm like, y'all don't even like each other. <laughs> in relationships, I see the same thing. Like romantic relationships or friendships. It's like, well, we need tools in order to learn how to communicate. And that's good. Tools are great. I, we use tools and they're fantastic. If you don't have affection for one another, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many DVD courses you go through or how many apps you download or whatever you do. If you, if you do not have affection for one another, that is the surest sign of a long-term sustainable relationship, a long-term sustainable community. And if you do not allow yourself to receive the affection of Christ Jesus, you will not have a long-term sustainable relationship with God. But here's the thing about affection. You have to stir it up. You cannot take affection for granted. And that's, again, the place where prayer comes in, the place where investment comes in. You have to stir up affection for the community, for your spouse, for your family, whatever it might be. You have to recognize where cynicism has taken an ugly hold and has caused that distance that you think that you're better than them. And you have to begin to, to figure out, how do I stir up affection for my beloved? How do I see them the way that Jesus does? And so we're going to uh, practice this uh, right now. When you came in on that little clipboard, there's an icon of Jesus. And I was thinking, oh, this is my favorite icon. But I realized they're all my favorites. They're all my children. This icon is called uh, Christ Pentocrator. 
And it's, uh, it's from Sinai in the sixth century. So this is a very, very, very old um, icon uh, that dates back about 1,500 years. Uh, and when things are old, we can rely on them, right? And I love, I love this icon so much because it, it conveys some beautiful things about the reality of who Christ is. So if you take, look at your icon, and if you look at the two halves of Jesus' face, the one that's on the left is almost serene. It's divine. It's godlike, and the, and the other side of his face is darkened, and, and it seems world weary. And what is, what this icon is brilliantly doing is inviting us to contemplate the dual nature of Jesus—that he is fully God and he is fully man. That Jesus is transcendent and high above all things. Yet he is completely imminent, that he is invested, he is present, he knows our experience of being human beings. And you can actually see in this image where they've kind of mirrored those two halves of Jesus to create a very different portrait of him. And this is the reality of Jesus that this icon is inviting us to contemplate. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple minutes and we're going to pray. And the first thing I'm going to invite you to do is just to be able to use that picture of Jesus to just contemplate. You know, I find I'm a very visual person. It helps me to have visuals to connect. I don't worship the visual, but it's like a window that kind of leads me to the thing beyond the thing, keeps me focused. And so I want you to use this image of Jesus to just kind of focus your prayer, to gaze upon the face of Jesus and to say, how does he see you? And what's he saying to you today? So let's, let's just, we're going to take some time and we're just going to contemplate the affection of Jesus. So God, we know you're here, that you are with us and that you are for us, that you turn curses into blessings, that your affection and love for us is not contingent upon our performance or our success, but it is because we are your beloved, that when you look at us, you see the, the face of your son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, Spirit of Jesus, I ask you right now, would you alight upon each of your dear ones here? Begin to speak to us about how you see each of us. Give us images, give us words, give us scripture, however you speak to us, Lord. Reveal to us your affection for us. Let's take a couple moments to contemplate the face of Jesus. not in a rush. This is not a test. Just take your time. Be with him. Let him speak.
not only are we to perceive the affection of Jesus for us, but we need the affection of Jesus to be able to see our community that's also in process. So the second half of our meditation, I want you to consider 10 people that you're connected to. And if you're really bold, I want you to consider five of those people to be people that you have a problem with right now. Okay, let's go there. Let's drum it up. And I want you to look, like consider each of those people in your mind's eye and say, how does Jesus see this person? This person that I'm having a fight with or I disdain. How does Jesus see them? And then do allow the affection of Jesus to guide your prayers. And I want you to intercede for those 10 people. So I encourage you, like write those names down. Uh, take notes on that little piece of paper that you were given. But let's just pray and let's intercede uh, on behalf of our community. Jesus, we need you. We need your love. We've become hard-hearted. We've disdained your bride. We've resented your church because she did not fulfill our expectations. Because Lord, we have not allowed the church to be the church, to be a group of people saved by grace seeking out the kingdom together being devoted to one another in the process forgive us Lord for our hard heartedness allow us to see the church the way that you do to see people in our community the way that you do first and foremost that that would change our thinking and therefore changing our actions Guide us, Lord. May we offer to others even an ounce of the affection that we expect for ourselves.
Paul finishes out this passage. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When we are saturated in the affection of Christ Jesus, we begin to embody wisdom in a conflicted world. We have to stir up affection. We have to open ourselves to the affection of Jesus and we have to stir up our affection for one another. And I think it's fascinating that for Paul, wisdom doesn't come from reading lots of books. Wisdom doesn't come from thinking about lots of intelligent things. Wisdom is a direct fruit of love. But for love, like love for Paul does not mean emotions, although that's part of it. It doesn't mean just feeling. Love for Paul was head and heart and body and soul all together moving in the same direction. It reminds me of in Ephesians 3 when he says that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge, which is the length and the width and the depth and the height of the love of Christ Jesus. Or in Colossians 3 that we looked at last week where he says, set your heart and set your mind on things above. Only then will you be able to do what is right in the sight of God. It's about formation of your character. It's about becoming more like him, becoming little Christs a little bit more day by day. And that begins by receiving the affection that Jesus has for you and the fondness that he has for you. And it continues by you practicing it and demonstrating it for your community and for those beyond. And that's what we call wisdom. And we need more of that wisdom in this world. So I wanna invite you to stand with me. And we're gonna come to the table you know, I've used that image many times of the father kind of standing in the doorway of the house, looking over the horizon, waiting to see you coming back, coming home. And he doesn't just wait for you to get there and then he wags his finger at you or he makes you do a bunch of stuff in order to find yourself worthy of coming into the house. No, he rushes out. He gathers you in. He embraces you. He welcomes you in. He doesn't even listen to your excuses. He's not interested. And he welcomes you into his house and he creates a space at his table and he says, sup with me, sit with me. Let me hear your story. Let me hear where you're going through. You are 100% accepted here, but you also have to know to sit at the table is to be transformed because that's the love of the Father for us. So I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna invite you to come forward to the table. God, I just feel so much of your love and affection for this group of people here, this motley crew, that we know you all in different degrees. We've experienced you in different ways. Some of us feel like we're just beginning the journey and some of us feel like we've been on this path for so long without any, any real hope in sight. Some of us are so overflowing with joy of being connected to you that it's bursting us at the seams and some of us feel dried up and shriveled wondering if you are real. And you welcome all of us to your table. And you say, this is my body broken for you because I love you. This is my blood spilt for you because I have affection and fondness for you.
Lord, there's nothing more Christ-like than what we are about to participate in. And so I pray as we come forward in that willingness to continue on the journey, to seek out faithfulness, that you would do something within us as we take into ourselves the body and blood of Jesus, that it would transform us from the inside out. And that that love would translate to wisdom in a world crying out for answers, for guidance, for truth. So bless us, Lord, as we come to your table. We pray these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's come to the table, starting in the front rows and working our way back. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.